Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, we're working through this final portion that starts with a question in verse 13. And then Paul begins to explain what he means by his question and answer in verse 14 and goes to the end of the, of the chapter. It's a notoriously difficult passage. And last week we traversed through the, the first two legs of the journey and today we'll reach the summit before heading to, to chapter 8. And we said the key to seeing your way through this, this tricky wicket of Scripture is to keep the context of the law. That's what Paul's talking about here. We see that Paul is showing how it, it offers no help. The law offers no help over the, over the flesh that, that a believer still, still has. I mean, Paul is arguing about one thing in chapter 7, which is in light of the gospel that he's preaching. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation. In light of that gospel, then what is God's purpose for the, for the law? And so Paul is probing the law's purpose and the law's limits. Its purpose in the first chapter, first half of chapter 7, and the law's limits in the second half. And, and its purpose is to reveal sin, to reveal sin's full force. That is to say, it's sinful beyond measure. It's, it's beyond anything that you think it is, beyond anything that you and I can deal with on our own, beyond anything that some external code can, can fix. And Paul says it, it does all of this by stirring up our own desires rather than subduing them in, in verse, verse 13. He says, but now in, in, in our section, he, he says the law also has limits. It neither keeps us from doing the things that we hate, verses 15 and 16 we saw last week, nor does it provide us the ability to do the things that we desire in verses 18 through 23. And, and as complicated as this passage seems, that's the main point. The law's inability to give us victory over the power of the, of the flesh. And we said there, there are three preliminary keys that, uh, that help us navigate the, the passage. Paul begins a new section. Go to verse 13. He says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, the result, sin would become utterly sinful and there are four markers, we said, in chapter 6 and 7, all of which begin with a question about the gospel. Romans 6, 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6, 15, what then are we to continue in sin since we're not under the law but grace? Question 3 in Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then our question that we're answering here in verse 13, finally, if, if the law is not bad, then does it have a bad result? Did that which is good then bring death to me? And each question builds on the former one, and they all come out of Romans chapter 5, verses 20 through, through 21, which says the law was added alongside the promise of salvation that he makes to Abraham. Was, the law was added to that promise to increase sin. So then obviously brings up all kinds of questions. And Paul answers every question, and he answers every question in the same way. May it never be. May 
He emphatically rejects the premise of, of those questions. Can you insist that grace may abound? May it never be. Does the law bring about our death? May it never be. And so in verse 13, Paul begins this final question of these two chapters before returning to his theme of assurance. Secondly, we said that we noted that Paul switched from past tense verbs that described B.C. days to present tense. You remember Paul talks about what it was like when, when he thought he was alive before, he thought he was righteous before, he thought everything was going okay, but then when the, when the law entered, when, when he became aware of what the law truly taught, he died. He talks about that experience that, that, that he has. Well, now he turns to present tense. I don't know what I'm doing. Here's what I desire, but here's not what I do. And, and while those can be historical presence, it's a specific category in the, in the Greek language that you can use for emphasis, I think the change that he makes to present tense coupled with this repeated emphasis of, of in him, in his flesh, and this desire to do one thing and not to do the other, I think makes it clear that the sphere that Paul is focusing on is the part of you as a believer, the part of him as a believer that's yet to be glorified. And the clearest example of that is in verse 18. Verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Where? That is in my flesh. In my flesh right now that's yet to be glorified. Sin still has power to tempt me and, and deceive me. And we said finally, just the, the overall context. Paul's writing to Christians struggling with how the law fits in. And in his reflection as a Christian, he shows what effect the law has on the flesh. He shifts to this new question, and the new section builds on the last, which says the, Paul, uh, the law reveals sin. And now he shows the law has no ability to help us to do anything about what it reveals. Paul again says sin is the problem, and he affirms the law is, is good. And that God did it this way through His good law so that we could see just how bad sin really is. And He'll continue to show us that by describing His and your experience revealed related to obeying, obeying the law while still possessing this, this fallen nature. Even when we see that God's command is good and right, we don't always do it. We said the whole passage is broken down in those, those three sections. Verses 14 through 17, verses 18 through 20, and now verses 21 through 25 we'll look at today. And, and you can see how, how each one begins with this four. Look, look at verse 14. It begins with a statement. We know something. We know that the law is spiritual. And then he'll talk about that from verse 14 through 17. Then verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. And then in verse 21, he begins to draw the conclusion. I find then the principle, or therefore the principle, the law that evil is present in me, the one who, who wants to, to do good. If it hasn't been clear to you yet that Paul is speaking about a, a battle in a believer in verses 14 through 20, I mean, verse 21 through 24, what we're going to cover today should, should leave no doubt. Look at verse 22. Paul says, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. I mean, a Christian is the only one who has an inner man. Wanting to do good, 
but also finding resistance in the members of, uh, of, of my body. I mean, it's very clear to me this is, this is Paul's own experience. He has a deep desire to keep the law, but he cannot always do what he wants. And you know that perplexing battle as well because you're tracking with Paul. You go through this passage, yeah, I felt that, yeah, I felt that. It's your experience too, isn't it, as a believer? We said this, this first section, there were three lamenting looks at, sin, uh, at the sin that dwells within. There was a declaration of common knowledge. There was a depiction of the source. And then a demonstration of experience where you're going just blow by blow. Uh, do this and don't do that. And, and you're tracking with that. So a declaration of what we know, a depiction of where it comes from. And then a demonstration of that in, in what we experience. Again, look at verse 14. We'll get a running start to just remind you where Paul has been to bring us to this conclusion that we'll look at today. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold in bondage to sin. It, it just, he sets the thesis for the rest of the whole chapter, and then he illuminates that in these two sections, 15 through 17, 18 through 20. He says the law is spiritual. The law has a divine origin. The second thing we know is that I am of the flesh. I do not have a completely spiritual nature like, like the law. And beyond that, he, he says the, the result is I'm sold in bondage to, to sin. And so the person that Paul speaks of here has, a, has still something defective in his nature, his inadequate resources to overcome the battle. He's fleshly, sold under sin. He's, he's unable to do what he desires. He's captive to sin at times. And the conclusion is, therefore, this person cannot keep the law which, which he now delights in. So then Paul shows the source of the problem in verse 15. Look at verse 15. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing that which I'd like to do, but I'm, I'm doing the very thing that, that I hate. What do you mean, Paul? You're, you're of the flesh, sold under sin? I mean, I'm perplexed at my genuine love for God and my inability to carry out that love. And not only that, sometimes I do the very thing I hate. It doesn't mean that Paul can't comprehend the facts of what's happening because he's writing about them right here. He explains in detail what he means. He means that it's, it's a perplexing reality that only a Christian knows. They strongly desire to keep God's law but they, and they don't desire to break it, but then they do. And Paul doesn't understand how he can desire so much to keep it and find no matter how hard he tries a, 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 that he never quite reaches the bar because he's not perfect yet. And when you evaluate that, you agree with Paul that the law is good. You've experienced that. Look at verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law. Confessing at that moment that the law is good. I mean, you understand at that moment the problem is not the law. It's not what God commands. Paul says in that moment of clarity, you understand the problem is sin dwelling in you. It's not the law's fault. So what's the problem then? Look at verse 17. So now, no longer I am the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. There's the problem. The source of the problem is what dwells in me. He's not excusing his guilt here or saying that we have two natures. He's getting very specific theologically. He's putting his theological finger in the, in the right place. Christian is a new man or, or woman. And that person has been completely transformed, but they also still live in what's called the flesh. 
You still have a body. Paul's explaining this theological reality. He's talking about this resident power in our flesh that remains. It's not the same as it was. We're, we're not in the flesh. You're of the flesh. You still have to deal with this sinful weakness that's, that's left over. It no longer dominates you. It, it no longer defines you, which is exactly what Paul is saying here. It's no longer I that do it, but sin dwelling in me. There's a new theological reality in a believer. There's an I still dwelling in the flesh. Unbelievers can't say that. And he explains this very plainly in verse 18. He, he demonstrates that from experience. Here's the evidence of what he says in verse 17. Look at verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Prove it. Okay? For the willing is present in me, but, but the doing of good is not. That's another statement. Of, for I know. I know the law is spiritual. It's, it's from God. It's of God. I know that nothing good dwells me. Uh, nothing good dwells in me. What, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by dwelling in, in you, Paul, or in me? He says, I mean in my flesh. The unredeemed part of me that will not be removed until glorification. And then he explains that further in verses 19 through, through 20. So verses 14 through 17 shows where the problem lies, the source Lies in indwelling sin and not the law. And then verses 18 through 20, he focuses on how this works out in life. Proving it from experience. The emphasis now is on action and inability to keep God's law. And then he brings us back to, to the fact, these two things that, that are a reality in a believer's life. Look at verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want... I'm no longer the one doing it, but, but sin which dwells in me. And there's the reality of a Christian. He's a new creation. But sin, hangover from it, still dwells in, in his flesh. And now in verses 21 through 25, Paul will draw the conclusion. It's the so what of the, of the section, if you, if you will. You've climbed the mountain. You can now see the summit. Paul has experienced this perplexing conflict that believers face. So what's the result uh, of that? Is there any solution to it, you might say? Which is where he'll take us now, and indeed there is. So Paul, in this concluding section, renders a verdict. There are four verdicts on the battle with, with, with the flesh in the life of a believer. Verse 21, there's the principle of the ongoing battle. Verses 22 to 23, there's a restatement of the war. There's a spiritual longing and the flesh's presence that's there while this ongoing battle rages. There's a frustrating conclusion of inability. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? You ask a question, and then there's the glorious hope of God's solution. Thank God. Through Jesus Christ, our, our Lord. Look at the principle of the ongoing battle here. Here's the first verdict that he, he renders after walking through this blow by blow. I do, I don't want to do, and so on and so forth. Look at verse 21. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I mean, Paul now draws a conclusion to everything that he said so far and evaluating everything that he says so far. He says, I find then, or therefore. What, what he concludes when he adds it all up is this perplexity about this perplexing battle that he just described is, is it's ongoing. 
He says it doesn't stop. It's present. It's a normal part of the Christian life. I mean, Paul says your flesh never improves here. It's the same as it was the day that you were that you were saved. Hopefully, you're not the same as the one as the way uh, as the day you were saved. Hopefully, you've grown in sanctification, but your flesh doesn't grow. Now, you can grow in sanctification and resist the flesh more and more, but it doesn't go away. Just ask the 85-year-old Christian who can't do some of the things that they once did, but still finds sinful desires in them, regardless of their ability to carry it out. They still have sinful thoughts. They still have sinful, sinful desires. Where does that come from? It comes from their flesh. They still have. And even Paul tells us in verse 24 how long this opposition is going to rage. Verse 24. How long is this battle going, going to go on? Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this battle, from this, from this body of death? I mean, everything he's talking about here, here will continue until we are separated from this body, which he calls a body of death. Now, the, 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 the NASB, the New American Standard, does some interpretation for us in its rendering of this verse. Verse 21. It says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. There's an ongoing principle, an ongoing battle. And most of your translations, if you don't have that one, an ESV or King James will say, I find then a law, or, or I find it to be a law, which is the original language. That, that's the word. That's the word that Paul uses. So, so you have to decide what law Paul is talking about, not only here, but he speaks of three different laws in, in this conclusion. Look at verse 22. This one's a little bit easier. Where I joyfully concur with the law of God. So verse 21, I find then the, the law that evil is present in. Verse 22, I, I find the law of God. Well, those are two different laws. And then in verse 23, but I see a different law. There's another one. And the members of my body wait, waging war against the law of my mind making me prisoner of the law of sin. Just like in previous verses, the first part of this passage, you don't have to guess what he means by each of these. You just pay attention. He defines each one of them as he goes through. I mean, Paul explains exactly what he means by each one in the verses that follow. And verse 21 is a, is a conclusion. This is Paul's overall, overall conclusion. Conclusion to this battle. So the New American Standard has it right. This is the principle that he finds as a believer. The principle of this battle. The perplexing battle is so normal and so ongoing, it's like a law. It, it runs like, the, like the, the sun rising and setting. It's universal. There's no Christian who does not experience this very battle that Paul is facing. And this is the general experience of their entire life. It's like a law. That's what Paul finds, or what he concludes. You have two problems as a Christian. You do, you do evil even though you don't want to at times, and you fail to do the good that you want to do at other times. The good news is that you can grow in your Christian life, and, and you'll, you'll find yourself doing less and less evil and more and more good by the power of the Spirit that he'll teach us about in chapter 8. But Paul describes the battle here. And he describes this battle in detail in one other place. And I, I want to show it to you. T turn over to Galatians 5. 
Romans 7 is not the only place that this battle that's normal in the Christian life. It's normative. It's ongoing. It's, it's, it, it will be there in every life, in every Christian's life until they die. It's, a, it's like a principle. It's like a law. And Paul describes that in another one of his epistles in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The conflict here in Galatians 5 is not identical. Because in Romans, if you've noticed, there's no mention of the Spirit. Obviously, the Spirit's in the background of Romans 7. I mean, who's producing these, these inner desires and these delights? I mean, the Spirit has regenerated you, and that's where these, these delights and desires to do what the law would, would say comes from. The Spirit's never mentioned by name in, in Romans 7. F.F. Bruce said if the Spirit was inserted into Romans 7, the outlook would be brighter. You, you might think of it this way. Romans 7 is, is, is specifically focused, it's a portrait of a Christian that, that's focused on the presence and power of indwelling sin in their life. Romans 7 focuses on the, on the battle, but it's a one-sided view. It's a lopsided view. It focuses on our failure, not our victory focuses on the law can't help you in that battle. And here's the battle, and, and that battle's going to go on your whole life. And, 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 and one day, God will give the answer. But he's focusing on the battle and how the law doesn't help you in the battle in Romans 7. But Galatians chapter 5 comes along and gives you both sides of the equation. Galatians 5 talks about the flesh and the spirit. It includes both. Look at verse 16. Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these things are in opposition to one another. There's the war. Now the result of that is so that you may not do the things that you, you desire, you please. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not, not under the law. I mean, you probably recognize this section as the one that contains the works of the flesh and the fruit of the, of the Spirit, and, and it does. But Paul begins by showing the battle between the two of those before he lists the evidences that we're operating in the flesh or in the Spirit. He says the, the deeds of the flesh are evident. Like, you know whether you're operating. The flesh is, 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 is operating. You're yielding to it. Here's a list. You also know when the fruit of the Spirit, the Spirit's fruit is being born in your life because here's what it looks like. Before he ever gets there, he shows the battle and, and how to yield to one and, and, and not the other. And of course, all of this is part of a bigger section on the book of Galatians about freedom. So Paul's now talking about the, the provision that God's made through the Holy Spirit. He gives the secret to victorious Christian life. The capability that God has provided to every believer in this ongoing battle is the ever-present power of the Holy Spirit. Which is why John says if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you're, you're, you're not of His. He says when a person is operating their life in accordance with the Spirit, they'll not obey the desires of the flesh. The Spirit's desires and the flesh's desires. And he gives some details about the, the Spirit's provision here and the opposition to the flesh that we need to pay attention to. Look at verse 16 again. He says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the, of the flesh. I mean, 
Notice Paul begins to transition here to a new level of his argument. This I say then, or but I say, or I mean this. You don't want to fall into the danger of devouring and dividing one another that he mentions in verse 15. He says, you must live your life by the Spirit. Look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. I mean, that there's someone operating in the flesh. Verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not do that. You'll not carry out the desires of the flesh to do that. You'll not bite and devour one another. You don't want to fall to the danger of that, then live your life by the Spirit because He's God's provision. That's what He's saying. And He gives a command to walk by the Spirit. Well, just like this word of an ongoing battle, this is the idea of, of carrying out your, your, your daily life. It, to walk means it's your customary lifestyle. It's the habitual practice in your life is yielding to the personal power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Yielding to the indwelling Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. I mean, does that mean that you run around in some super spiritual stupor, chanting and eating paste? The original language actually tells us, it gives us some additional details to what to help us understand what Paul means. This is a present imperative command. It's a it's a command that means something that you do all the time, every day. It's not a one and done. You don't yield to the Spirit once and become holy or sanctified. You live every day from now until heaven under His power. Amy Carmichael said, sometimes when we read the words of those who have been more than conquerors, we feel almost despondent. I feel that I should never be like that, she said. But we would do well to remember that they won through step by step, by little bits of wills, little denials of self, little inward victories, by faithfulness in very little things. That's how they became what they are. No one sees these little hidden steps. The, they only see the accomplishment, but even so, those small steps were taken. There is no sudden triumph, no spiritual maturity that is the work of the moment. Amen. Something that you can't see in this walk by the Spirit is that Paul in the Greek puts the Spirit in front of the verb. He's emphasizing He is the instrument used to accomplish this this. This life that he's, he's talking about. I command you by the Spirit, walk. The idea. By the Spirit, carry out your daily life. The second half of the verse then, then gives the promise of what will happen in the battle. That The promise that will surely come to a believer who obeys this command. Look at verse 16. But I say by the Spirit, carry out your daily life. And you will not fulfill. You will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You will not fulfill. You will not bring, uh, bring to its goal the desires of the flesh. What are the desires of the flesh? We just described a representative example in verse 15, biting and devouring and destroying one another. And then its works are evident. The deeds that follow are evident that, that, that it gives you here. Morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, drunkenness, and so on and so forth. 
which is the exact opposite of love? It gives in verse 13, and this is a really strong promise. It uses the ume with a subjunctive in the Greek. It's the strongest negation possible in the original language. You will in no way carry out the, the desires of the flesh. You will in no way yield to the battle. And Paul's saying there's an opportunity for the flesh that's possible because the flesh that remains in you has a desire and that desire must not be yielded to and will not be yielded to if one obeys the command by the Spirit live, live life. Utilize the provision of the, of the Spirit. And the Judaistic law keepers in Galatia were arguing the same thing that they were arguing in, in Rome. They were arguing without the law code, without traditions... The flesh would be unrestrained and people would sin. I mean, what do you mean, grace? You need the law too. Their argument was the Galatians and you needed to keep those things because those things will help you obey God. And Paul shows here that the law code will not help you obey one iota of the Bible. Show you what's right. You'll agree it's right. But it doesn't provide you any power for the battle doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that, that it's not helpful. shows you the railroad tracks that the train's supposed to run on. Without that, you wouldn't know where to go. But, but, the, but the train's on the tracks of the law, and, and, and it's the spirit that's the engine. The spirit's the fire that, that propels the train down the tracks at the tracks of the law. So Paul shows us here that the law's not powerful enough to do this. So in verse 16 and what follows, he shows us why. Because there's a conflict. Here's the war. Conflict between the flesh and the spirit. Just like in Romans. And you know what Paul's talking about in both places because you've experienced it. If you've been in a Christian, if you've been a Christian any length of time, the flesh is that self-orienting human element that remains. That, that you're, you're even in, in, in church or you're talking to somebody about the Bible, you're reading the Bible, and, and all, of a sudden, all of a sudden the flesh arises. Where did that come from? Paul shows you here exactly where it came from. And on the flip side, you've been reading the Bible, and all of a sudden it becomes so plain and so clear, and you begin to weep. Or the Holy Spirit of God who in regeneration gives you a new nature, remains in you, and he begins to produce this fruit. You love people that you wouldn't have any reason to love in any other way. You, you have joy when you shouldn't have joy. You have peace when you shouldn't have peace. I mean, it doesn't come from your flesh. It doesn't come from the law. That, that comes from God living in you. He's helping us in this battle, producing godly desires and granting us the ability to carry him out. That's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation, your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it. Work it out. Why? For God is at work in you. He's at work in you in the Holy Spirit. For God is at work in you, both the will and to do of His good pleasure. He's both working the desire and the ability to carry out God's good pleasure in you by, by the Spirit. Look at the promise again here in, in Galatians. Verse 16, You will not fulfill, bring to its goal, the desire or lust of the flesh. It doesn't say there will be no battle. It doesn't say that the flesh will go away. It says that the flesh won't accomplish its plans. 
his full plan will, will, be, will be thwarted. I mean, this, this brings to my mind 1 Corinthians, which says, No temptation taken you, but such which is common unto man. But God will provide you a way of escape. It doesn't say you won't be tempted. It doesn't say it won't be hard. It says that there's a way of escape. Just like here. Did you know your flesh has plans? It does. It has plans that, that are like, like DNA. I mean, it's, it's, it's coded in you. It has plans to lead you away from God and lead you toward sin. It has plans to, to exalt self. It's always there, regardless of whether you're, you're paying attention to it or not, and it's working its desires. But, but this verse says if you yield your life to the Spirit's power, you won't yield to those plans. Look at verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you, you please. What's implied in verse 16 is now made very explicit. God, the Spirit's desires are contrary to that of the flesh. The two are irreconcilable. Contrary and opposition is a word meant to be hostile toward one another. The ways of the world, the philosophies of the world are, are hostile toward the gospel. Luke 17, 13, this word is translated as an enemy, as an opponent how foolish it is then to try to mingle in the philosophies and the ways of the world and the solutions of the world and try to try to spoil the Egyptians, as they say, and use those along with the Bible. 2 Thessalonians 2.4 uses this word to describe the Antichrist. That's how opposed it is. While some claim that a believer can reach the point where the conflict between the flesh and the spirit will cease, Paul knows no such doctrine, and you also no such doctrine, don't. As the flesh is wholly bent on its desires woven within its makeup, so too are the desires of God immutably, unchangeably present in a believer. You think about it. We're not neutral. We're not unbiased observers in this battle. I mean, if left alone without the Spirit, the, the desires that come from the fall will exercise their influence. You, proof of that? What happens when you stop reading your Bible, stop coming around to other believers, stop listening to preaching? Do you get better? Do you stay the same? You know what happens. You get worse. Which is exactly what Paul is describing in Romans 7. It's also why it seems that there's, there's a war raging in your soul a lot of the time. When the Spirit gives you a new nature and now the Spirit resides in you, this battle takes place. There's not a battle in an unsaved person. I mean, they may, they may battle against their conscience... His flesh rules. But the minute that the Spirit of God comes in, the desire of God enters, and then the war begins, doesn't it? That's what this verse says. That's what it means in verse 17, the end of it. So that, what's the result of this battle? So that you do not do the things that you wish. Verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. I'm tracking with you, Paul. There's a battle of flesh and spirit. Where did the law come from? I mean, he ends with a reminder of his main topic, which is the law's inability to sanctify. You foolish Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Did you be, Let me ask you a question. Did you begin by the spirit or by the law? It's his main theme here. 
you would expect Paul to say, those who are led by the Spirit are not, un, not in the flesh. But he inserts the law to make sure you don't lose his main point. It, it's, it's by the life-giving power of the Spirit that the Galatians began. And they'll not be perfected by the law, and, which, is, which has as its power, its only source of, of power, the flesh. The law can't save, faith does. The law can't sanctify, the Spirit does. The law can't produce love, and the Spirit does not come by the law. Or to use John Piper's helpful little poem, insert your name here, run, John, run, the law commands. Run, Brian, run, the law commands. The law commands me to do things. Run, Brian, run, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. The law commands me to do things, but doesn't give me the ability to carry it out. But far better news the gospel brings, for it bids me fly and gives me wings. The gospel not only bids me fly, but it gives me the ability to do that. That's exactly what Paul is saying in, in Romans 7. Turn back there. Romans 7, we'll finish this up. Paul's saying the law gives us no power over this never-ending and ongoing battle Verse 21, Romans 7, only focusing on one side of the battle primarily. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. It's an ongoing battle. What do you mean, Paul? Well, let me restate what I've said before in summary form. Verse 22, notice it starts with 4. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. It's waging war against the law of my mind, make me, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Here's a second verdict on the battle of, with the flesh. It's a restatement of the war. There's a spiritual longing in a believer alongside with the flesh's presence. He starts with what a believer rejoices in. Verse 22, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. And I think this is where the section becomes even clearer that Paul is talking about a regenerate person. Because an unsaved man cannot delight in the law and an unsaved man is not going to, be, not going to desire to be delivered from this body of death. I mean, there's something happening in, in his inner being when, when he hears the law. Which is defined in the very next verse as the law of his mind. In the hidden part of a Christian, the part that no one can see, deep down in the core of who they are, they find joy and delight related to God's truth. I mean, haven't you experienced that? You're in the middle of, of, of the battle. You've failed to the battle. You're, you are struggling big time. And you come to church and you hear the, the, the law. You hear what's right. You hear the gospel. And even though you're in the midst of failure, there's something that, there that, that, that buoys you. You delight in it. And you concur that that's right, even though you're doing wrong. This is an echo of Psalm 1, the way of the righteous. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. That's a believer. No unsaved person says that. Did you say that before you were saved? Oh, I can't wait to read the Ten Commandments. When I read it, something just happens in me. 
Now, there's something else going on here as well. Look at verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. But it's, it's a, notice the contrast. He also finds a different law, not bringing delight, but waging war. He says it's another law. And that doesn't mean a second one, just like here's one and here's another. This means it's entirely different. One that's in complete opposition to the other. One that's completely incongruent with the other. So there is a law in his mind. There's a principle operating in his mind. And then there's one that's operating in his members. There's one thing operating in his inner man. There's another thing operating in his flesh. And the principle operating in his flesh is waging war. It's making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Once again, he delineates where the problem lies. It's in my member. This word's strong here. It means to wage a military campaign. Notice that this doesn't wage war, but it actually captures him in the midst of the war at times. Paul says it brings me into captivity. Very strong word as well. It means to incarcerate. In the middle of the battle, sometimes it lays hold of me and incarcerates me. Lloyd-Jones said the, the original word here that Paul chooses to use meant to be held by the, the point of a spear. It's like you have a prisoner, and you're walking the prisoner along, and that prisoner's at the, at the point of the spear. The word's chosen purposely by Paul and describes a Christian's ongoing limitation. A Christian is a new man and has a new mind, and in that, that new mind, when... When they hear God's law, they rejoice in it. They say the law's holy, the law's righteous, the law's good, it's spiritual. And they even conclude when, when we succumb to the battle, the law is good, that's not the problem, but there's another influence in his flesh that rises up and battles these holy desires, and Paul says at times it traps me. It holds me at the point of a spear, like, like I'm unable to, to get away from it. And so my mind loves and delights in God's law and wants to put it into practice, but, but his flesh resists God's law and takes him captive to this principle of sin which resides in him. And when Paul sees himself like that, held at the point of the spear, he cries out in frustration. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will set me free from this battle? Point of the spear. Here's the third verdict. It's the frustrating conclusion of inability. I mean, Paul bursts out in climactic conclusion that that leads to an ever to an even more heartfelt question. Wretched man that I am. I hate this. Wretched man that I am. Some say that that's evidence that Paul's not saved here. I think it's just the opposite. I never said that as an unsafe person. I wanted to get out of my problems, but, but I didn't see that I was miserable before God. You know, it's just the opposite because you've had this feeling. You didn't feel that when you were lost, that's for sure. The I that Paul's been talking about here in all these previous verses now draws the conclusion. It's now 
now defines it as someone wretched, someone miserable. He concludes he's in a miserable condition. He longs to be free from this state. Not every part of his condition is miserable because he's delighting in the law, in the inner man. He's being able to see that the law is spiritual and, it, and it's good. But, but a Christian longs to be free from this world. Longs to be sinless and with their Savior. So he asks them, answers the question, who will set me free from this body of death? And that's answered in verse 25. This body of death, it's like a corpse. It's hung on him. He's now unable to free himself from. But thankfully, Paul says, I'm, I'm, not, let alone, I'm, I'm not left alone in this. God has still promised further deliverance. I mean, think about it. If the forgiveness of sin was not enough, if the ever-present power of the Spirit was not enough. He's also promised full redemption. Here's the glorious hope of God's solution, the final verdict. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In, in the Greek, it's, it's kind of broken because of his eagerness to answer. He just says, thank God <laughs> through Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, it's like he can't get the answer out fast enough. He, he's the only answer. The solution to the battle will be ongoing until death. The battle is perplexing at times because in the deepest part of our souls, we love God, we agree with His law, where we're you're told that sin no longer has dominion over you. you know, the battle is lost at times where you feel like you're, your flesh is so powerful it holds you at the, at the spear's point, jabbing you all the time. The, the battle that shows you are impotent in and of yourself, you're powerless in your own strength, that battle, Paul says, has been won by Jesus Christ who will deliver one day, deliver you even from this body where this flesh remains. And every Christian says to that, hasten the day, do you not? And he concludes by bringing us back to his original proposition. Look at verse 25. So then... On the one hand, I myself with my mind and serving the, the, the law of God in my inner man. He's already told us where this law of operates principle in his mind is. It's in his inner man. But on the other, the with my flesh, the law of sin. I mean, think about it. I mean, verse 24 should be the conclusion. What better way to end? Who's going to deliver me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, period. Now, Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's what you would expect. But Paul ends with, therefore then, which is a really strong inferential statement. On the one hand, Paul says, with the mind I serve God's law and delight in it, but on the other hand, with the flesh I serve the principle of sin. I, I think Paul ends this way just as a reminder. The final victory is not yet. Final, it's a final reminder that the war still wages before we get to chapter 8. It'll show us consistently how to win it. Provision of the Spirit. There's a longing to be delivered from this body. There's a commitment in chapter 8 that God is committed to you even in the midst of this battle. He's already forgiven you. Who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? 
that you're loved by Christ even in the midst of this battle, even though you still have the flesh, and nothing will ever separate you from that love. Even the battle, even the failures in the battle, God has promised to force that, to work together for your good, the ones who are called, the ones who love God. Lays out from beginning to end what it looks like. Calling the glorification. The battle is raging in the middle of that, and, and yet God's commitment to you, God's purposes for you, the promise that you're going to be conformed to Christ, glorified, is never thwarted by any of that. You're absolutely, completely secure. Not because of the law, but because of your strength, not because of anything you do, but because of Christ. And what will help you in the midst of that battle is God's Word. When we're in Galatians, we're talking about the flesh and the Spirit, yielding to the Spirit, walking by, by the Spirit. And so what does that mean? Does that mean you know some super spiritual state? It means yielding to the, to the Word. I mean, being filled with the Spirit is being filled with the, with the Word of God. The Spirit illuminates the Word, the Spirit helps you understand the Word, and the Spirit empowers you to, to do the Word. It's not something outside of the Bible. The work of the Spirit is not outside of the Bible. The work of the Spirit is in the Bible. What will help you in this battle is being full of the Bible, understanding the Bible. It's like oil for your lamp like food for your soul. It gives you the strength. It's why when you're away from the Word, you're weak in the battle. Ran across a really helpful, it was encouraging to me, story told by Scottish minister Robert MacDonald who lived 1813 to 1893. He was a close friend of Robert Murray McShane and Gracious Bonner, and he told the story of Robert Moffat about how the Word of God transforms us and sustains us even in the even in the darkest times. Robert Moffat was a missionary to Africa, and he goes to a, a heathen village in the in the midst. It's, I guess told from his diary. And after telling of, of Moffat's arrival at himself and his companions as a heathen village on, on the banks of the, the Orange River in, in South Africa, Dr. Moffat says this. He says, We'd traveled far and we were hungry and thirsty and fatigued. Come to this unreached village of these unreached people. We, we asked them for water, but, but they would not supply it offered three or four buttons that still remained on my jacket for a little milk. This was also refused, and we had the prospect of another hungry and thirsty night. Here they are in the, the, the inner recesses of Africa, hot and tired and just wanting some water. And it says, when twilight drew, when, when night drew, a, a woman approached from the height beyond which the village lay. So they're camping outside of the village, and a woman comes. And she bore on her hood a bundle of wood, on her head a, a bundle of wood, and a vessel of milk in her hand, and she laid them down in front of us and returned to the village without saying anything. 
And a second time she approaches, she comes back again with larger supplies. We asked her again and again who she was, and she remained silent. Till affectionately entreated to give us a reason for such unlooked for kindness to strangers. Leaving this to be an, an unreached people. And when they said, tell us why you're doing this. It says a solitary tear strolled down her sable cheek when she replied, I love him whose servants ye are. And surely it is my duty to give you a cup of cold water in his name. My heart is full, therefore I cannot speak the joy I feel to see you in this out-of-the-world place. And Moffat said, I asked her how she kept the life of God in her soul in the absence of communion of all saints. No church, no other believer around her. And she drew from her bosom a copy of the Dutch New Testament she had received in school some years before. And she said, this is the fountain which I drink. This is the oil which makes my lamp burn. And Moffat said, thus does thus does the Lord sustain and gladden the hearts of His servants in their times of need. The Bible is power enough to keep solitary believer in the midst of unsaved tribe in the jungle and the Bible is enough to give you victory in the battle that rages in your Christian life. It's what will feed you and sustain you and without it you have no hope whatsoever of overcoming the battle within you. You're not going to find it in written code. You're going to find it in the life-transforming power of the Scriptures that set alive, set aflame by the Holy Spirit who resides in you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you that we're not left alone. Thank you that you sent the Comforter to us. Thank you that while we pray to you and long to be with you and know that you're omnipresent, thank you that we have the Holy Spirit of God, you that lives within us. And thank you also that beyond the Spirit, we have, we have a Bible. We have your voice. We have your truth. We have instruction. We, we have something to feed on. We have oil for our lamps. Oh, Lord, may we feed on it, understand it, and then yield to your Spirit when He shows us what to do in it. We can say at times, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I see what it says. Help me carry it out. We, we can also say at times, I'm, I'm weak. Help me be strong. But then help us to walk in it. You might be glorified until the day that we're free from this body of death. We look upon you face to face in Jesus' name.